What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. With the success of politicians like Stacey Abrams and grassroots activists like Latasha Brown, many have been wondering whether it would be a good idea for black Americans in the northern states to move south and consolidate and grow black power. It's the argument of today's guest Charles Blow, op-ed columnist at the New York Times and author of The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto. And if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for the book in the podcast description. But now let's go to the episode with host Dele Olajede. Welcome everyone. A special welcome to Charles Blow, who joins us, I believe, from uh, Georgia somewhere. I'm not sure if he's Atlanta or Savannah or some other point in between. But it's uh, uh, very exciting for me to help lead this conversation tonight, Charles, about your new book, which proposes something fairly radical. So, Charles, we will dive right into it. Your new book is called The Devil You Know. Actually, I'm sort of presuming that everybody knows you. This is a kind of New York tribalism at play here. Charles Blow is a star columnist for the New York Times, a commentator on CNN, a visiting professor at Yale, and the author of a powerful memoir, Fire Shut Up in My Bones. I think that captures a tiny slice of your life, but will be sufficient for our purpose. So if we're moving now to The Devil You Know, which is a somewhat radical manifesto for black power in America, far removed, of course, from the Black Panther movement, uh, a different kind of radical manifesto. Would you care to explain to us the main highlights of this big idea? Uh, Sure. And thank you for having me and thank you for doing this with me. First, I would like to say and put a pin in this that I don't think it's a radical idea at all. Um, but I'll go back to the, to the general, general uh, thesis, which is that um, at the end of the Civil War, several southern states were majority black. Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina. There were th- three others that were within four percentage points of being majority black. Every uh, another were within four percentage points. Uh, every southern state had large black populations because up until the Great Migration, 90 percent of black America lived in the American South. And so, you know, if you think about it, if, and these are big ifs, if the Great Migration had not happened, and if Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Act still had happened, had still happened, black people could control a large region of America. They could control up to 14 Senate seats. They could control more, conceivably, more electoral college votes than California and New York State combined. 
if they voted over that entire period the way they vote now, they would not have been a Republican's president for at least the last 30, 40 years. And if, I guess if I'm and if I'm not mistaken, there's not anyone on, presently in the Supreme Court who was appointed over that for longer ago than that. That means that the entire Supreme Court would look different. And that and that is what power actually looks like. And here's the reason that I will say that it's not a radical idea. For the last 90 years, every state in America has been majority white. And no one says a word about that being a problem in any way. There are right now at least uh, six or seven states where the white population of the state is 90 percent or more. And no one looks at that and says that is a, that is radical, that is problematic, that is a racial issue. They, they control one out of every six Senate seats. Black people are uh, those the population of those states combined is only a fourth of the black population of America. And yet black people don't control Senate seats in America. It's not radical. It is a, it is a redistribution of power in a way that may, creates equality rather, rather than uh, radical in, uh, in, imbalance. Okay, so so Chas, but what what is interesting about this uh, for me on so many levels? One is you are essentially asking people to do a reverse Jacob Lawrence, right? It's you know the migration series is towards the north, and now to turn that around and go to the south, particularly to the core south, where there is a significant chance of black people being either in the majority or almost 50-50 split, which affects the balance of power. This suggests at one level, of course, that American politics is largely racially deterministic. And I don't want to argue that because there's a lot of evidence to support that, that thesis, even though some may disagree with it, but I don't want to uh, even disagree with that. What I'm asking you is whether there has been any example throughout the history of human migration, where people migrated solely so they could improve their chances of gaining political power. It's always been driven, to the best of my knowledge, by the desire for a better life, economic imperatives, for safety, fleeing violence or enormous natural disasters and so on and so forth, better opportunities for their children. Those are always the traditional drivers of migration. How do you propose persuading people to migrate on the basis of politics? Well, there's one incredible example that piqued my interest in writing this book. And it wasn't black people who did it, but young white people, hippies. So uh, uh, during the, uh, the Vietnam War, it wasn't going the way the young progressive wanted it to go. They protested, they marched, there was even some violence around trying to get Richard Nixon to change his approach to the Vietnam War. He proceeded to execute that war the way that he wanted to. Two young law students from Yale Law School published an article in the Yale Law Review entitled uh, Jamestown 70, I think it's called, where they say to these young hippies, you want revolution, you're not going to get it the way you think you can get it. But what you can do is this thing that we call radical federalism. You can simply take over a state. Now, this little paper languishes for a while to a, a much more prominent writer, picks it up and writes an uh, article for Playboy the following year under the headline, Take Over Vermont. And he lays out his math and the rationale for how these young hippies could, act, could alter politics 
by taking over this very small state, and it wouldn't take a lot of them to do it. And these young white people, by the tens of thousands, moved to Vermont. Part of it is political power, part of it is freedom, part of it is wanting to uh, have some sort of self-determination, but it is largely political. They do not move because there's uh, tons of jobs and housing. In fact, they, many of them sleep in the fields. They develop communes just to be able to survive. But they do it and they change Vermont from one of the most conservative states in the union to now it is one of the most liberal states in America. It is the state in 2008 in which Barack Obama wins his highest percentage of the white vote. It is the state that gives us senators like Bernie Sanders. So, all right, let's step back a little bit, I think, to look at the backdrop to this book, at least the immediate backdrop to this book. George Floyd, obvious sort of pornographic violence, state violence against black people in the streets of America, brought powerfully to uh, every telephone screen on earth. And to me, perhaps even more powerful and more representative of uh, the racial superstructure of the United States was the bird watcher incident in, in Central Park, in which a white woman, over an argument about whether she should leash her dog, threatened to and did call the full powers of the state to descend on this black man who had dared to tell her to follow the rules. Now, it seems to me that that showed us more about America than the almost pornographic violence that took the life of George Floyd in the sense that this white woman understood that she had the full apparatus of the state at her beck and call, which she could choose to unleash on a black man at any time, and knew that he knew it. So I thought that was very instructive in that sense, perhaps more usefully than George Floyd. But this was all happening at the same time. And in some way, this provoked your idea of the book, right? Or at least forced you to go back to something that probably was germinating in your mind long before that. Exactly. It added fuel to a fire that was already raging. And one thing that you are pointing out is that there is not perfect, perfect alignment between liberalism and racial egalitarianism, right? So I can right. be completely for fighting climate change. I can be for a woman's right to choose. I can be in favor of gay people getting married and still not be a racial egalitarian. In fact, I can be a full-fledged white supremacist who believes in using the power of the state against people who I do not agree with or who I think threaten me in any way or infringe into my space. And that is, that happens a lot into in these uh, cities and states that black people fled to during the Great Migration. They are liberal in many ways. They are just not racial egalitarian. Okay, so if you look at that backdrop and also that Trump was in, in full flight at this time, right? So that must have created in you, I'm guessing, a profound sense of pessimism about the state of things. Because this is basically advocating that black people should go congregate in the same neighborhoods and in the same states in order to be able to better effectively defend themselves in the United States of America through increased or improved political power. There is something seriously pessimistic about that. 
Well, I, I don't know if that, I, maybe it is. I don't know if I necessarily would characterize it in that way. What I experienced was exhaustion with repetition, right? That, that both my reading of history saw constant repetition of black progress and, and, and strenuous black, white backlash to that progress. I, I kept seeing black people being murdered in the street and the, and the system basically working as it was designed to do to shield the people who did the killings. Mm-hmm. I had, you know, interviewed many of these mothers, so-called mothers of the movement, the, the, the mothers of the people who are slain. And that repetition of pain was playing out in my head. And also I have three children who are now adults in this world. And I'm thinking, I just, I can't imagine them go, re- living or living through this same groundhog day of racial reckoning and and consideration that I'm living through. There has to be a solution to this. And so to your tent, O Israel. Yes. (laughs) So so, (laughs) there is something about the critique of Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me and what I expect to be the possibly the number one potential critique of your book, The Devil You Know, is the sense that it's sort of building on the comment you just make, uh, reveals an exhaustion with what may appear to be an immovable object. But many would argue that that is also not a correct view of history, that people do change, that societies do change. And therefore, for us to devise solutions on the basis that people are unlikely to change, at least not in our lifetime, that that is, that is in a way, a crushing of hope. And hope is the reason we get up in the morning. What would you say to people who would ask you a question like that? I, I don't want black people to get up in the morning because of hope. It's ephemeral. It's it's it is it is a religious concept that is not a power concept. And political power is what changes your circumstances today, and not sometime in the future, and not by some <laughs> divine act, but by your own doing. In in addition to that, it is important for me to always remind people who want black people to live by what Martin Luther King called the the myth of time that white liberals seem to live by. That somewhere in the offing is your liberation. Somewhere out there, not today, but it's coming. It's coming. That every black person who has ever been on this American soil and and woes and rose in the morning would sleep at night is just as human as I am. They were just as human. And the fact that 400 years of suffering of some sort has befallen these people by American white supremacy and racism is not tolerable. And I believe the, the very idea of, of saying to black people, pat us on the back for it not being as bad as it used to be, even though it is not fixed, is offensive to me. You know, this this is this is the thing that should never have been done. I do not have to applaud your centuries long undoing of it. So let's go back to this issue of this idea that people do change and societies do transform, whether it's feudalism in China or, you know, 
slavery itself, whether it's the possibility of uh, a, a grand experiment for white people like apartheid, but uh, a horrific tragedy for black people of South Africa uh, did come to an end, even though its effects will be felt for many generations to come but that there is a capacity in human beings, inherent in human beings, to change. Like, if you look at gay rights in America, Clinton was still bending over backwards and twisting to a pretzel to define, you know, don't ask, don't tell, and all of a sudden the whole thing collapses and, you know, the barbarians had entered the gates. So all of these things do show that after a period of resistance, people change. Do you think that is qualitatively different when it comes to racism and race? Not necessarily, but you have to understand that your entire proposition that people are, have the capacity to change. The other side of that seesaw is that you must have the patience to wait for that change. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I keep saying to people, on what planet is that okay with me? Or should it be? Why should I even listen to that conversation? That my that my patience must be infinite because my your capacity to change is infinite. But there is no timetable on either one of them. So, point taken. Let's go to the idea of home going of the return. What in South Africa in their many years of exile and longing for the homeland will call my buie. Which, and which wraps up all sorts of feelings of longing and, and, and the desire for home. Very powerful when you break down the meaning of that. The idea of home. Do black Americans consider the South home that it holds such almost mythic uh, and emotional power for black Americans that on the basis of this rescue effort that you are attempting, large enough numbers will undertake the reverse migration to go back to the South. I'm just trying to understand that. Yes. Uh, so I, I'm not exactly sure that it exists in the, in the uh, collective imagination of people who live outside the South that the South is home. However, the reverse migration is already happening without me writing about it. Has been happening for a, a probably two or, le or three decades already. Right now, tens of thousands, I think the last time I checked was 82,000 young millennials move out of northern and western cities and back to the south. There is already a pull. And part of that pull is around being in safe space, being in space where your identity and your culture is central and not additive. There are now 1,200 majority black cities in America. 90% of them are in the American South. In 1973, Maynard Jackson becomes the first mayor, black mayor of a major American city, which was Atlanta, where I'm talking to you from now. And that was because Atlanta became majority black in 1970. Today, when you look around the South, not including Texas or Florida, not places that I'm expecting people to, to uh, return to, it is most of the major cities in the American South have black mayors or have had them recently. Many of them have black police chiefs or have had them recently. Black culture is in the soil of the South. Black institutions are have a primacy in the American South. 
there is something attractive about that in addition to the, the opportunity for prosperity for black people in this country. Charles, I want to stay on that subject for a minute because I think it's actually central to the prospects of this idea taking hold. One of the things that occurs to me about a potential difficulty for sufficient numbers of people buying into this idea, apart from sort of the usual inbuilt stuff about opportunity and so on, is that Overall and throughout human history, the idea of the return of going home is a very difficult and often fraught one. That home was not the home you left, either physically or emotionally, either now or many generations ago. Home has changed, and the life of the exile is a form of uh, a testament to, to that idea. I think it was Thomas Wolfe's uh, famous phrasing of you can't go home again. That is not necessarily literally true, but even in my own life, I see that I've struggled to re-enter my native country after three decades, right? I am passionately in love with the place in many ways. I want the place to work. I keep looking for ways for me to contribute to its revival. But it is not the same home I left anymore. It was not the home of the poetry and going to Wallace showing cars inaugural play uh, for, you know, Death and the King's Man. It wasn't my aunts down the street and, you know, the mother of the die pits who sings the family epic to me when I'm distressed. That is all gone. So returning home is quite fraught, don't you think? And do you think that's an obstacle to what you're proposing? I do not because I understand the phenomenon that are happening right now in America. We are experiencing four great migrations in America right now. One is immigration, mostly from our southern border. A second is climate migration as people have to move out of places that are no longer uh, habitable in the same way that they were. A third, though, the one that is most applicable to the, to the reverse migration, what I'm talking about, is urbanization, which is largely driven by young white millennials. These young white millennials are reversing the decisions made by their parents to move out into the suburbs and the exurbs and go moving back into American cities. That is the reason why you have places like D.C. that are no longer majority black, you know, because of influx of white people. You, that's why gentrification is raging. That is the same thing that is happening with many young black people. It is not them. The Great Migration ended in 1970, the year I was born. I'm 50 years old. Most of these young people never lived in the South. They're reversing a decision that their parents made, not that they made. They have no personal sense of exile from anywhere. They see opportunity to be in space with other people like them and in culture that they enjoy. Right. But that also points to the fact of opportunity being a main driver of that sort of migration. This is proposing, you, Charles Blow, are proposing that for black people in America to gain a semblance of adequate political power, presumably for the purposes of defending themselves against a hostile environment, that they need to consciously move to the South where they can act in numbers in a concentrated area. It seems to me that that is a different motivation. How do you get people to act on that basis by itself? I mean, black people can vote in Brooklyn, right? You can elect the next mayor and the attorney general. Yeah, but Brooklyn doesn't have two senators. 
This is true. This is true. But but I but I think that, that the, the construct here I would challenge because it suggests that opportunity is exclusive of power. And I say that opportunity goes hand in hand with power. Right. And also that that you're not necessarily moving solely as an act of defense, but to create an environment where white supremacy does not prevail. And therefore, that everybody then is able to live a better and fuller life. Now, I'm interested. You have two sons, right? Two sons and uh, one Charles, daughter. Two sons and one daughter. Have you had this conversation with them? I'm interested in what they said to you. Absolutely. I mean, I just wrote. So one is already in, in medical school and he's in New York. My daughter is trying to make the Olympics. She wants to practice medicine and she believes that she wants to practice here in Atlanta. So, yes, I've had these kind of conversations with my own children and and with a lot of young people, because I think the one thing to remember, even though I did move to Atlanta, migrations are generally not about 50 year old men. Migrations are about yeah. young people before, you know, before yeah. when they can live anywhere in the world and before they start their lives, and before they have major commitments and connections. That is what migrations are about. And so those young people are very open to having this conversation. The ones that I've encountered. So. There is this uh, quote that's very interesting from the book. The time is at an end for black people begging and pleading, marching and chanting for an equitable stake in that power. The time has come to simply assume it, to use the Constitution itself as a vehicle. I have written this book not as a meditation on race, not as a protestation, but as a plan, a manifesto. Now... I've moderated various leadership seminars, usually for the Aspen Institute's leadership programs, the idea of the good society and the kind of leadership that it requires. And these arguments of what constitutes good, the good society has been going on for many thousands of years. And one of those arguments in our time, or more recently, was the idea of communism, right? And when you read the manifesto, it has brilliant analysis of the problem. And it is at the point of the recommendations, the, of the preferred solutions, that things begin to fall apart fairly radically. Beautifully written. I, I am a very good lover of beautifully written things. I'm waiting for the transition of what you're about to say here. <laughs> so, 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 Charles, I am asking you as a booster and a supporter and a friend, how you propose for this to actually happen once the idea is released into the wild. Because this is, change does not happen on something that may seem admittedly not esoteric, but you are asking them to move for reasons other than what they've always moved for. I think we, we have to stop reframing it. I'm asking them to move in addition to reasons that they've already moved for, uh -huh. right? So th those reasons still exist. In addition to that, you could have political power. And having got the political power, because there's an argument going on in lots of countries, including the one where I am physically right now. I'm in the city of Lagos in Nigeria for the next 24 hours. There is an argument that they've been having for a couple of decades about rotating the presidency among various regions and so on. And the argument falls flat if you are using reason and logic because the current president of the country is from the northern part of the country and the north has never suffered more. 
has never been worse for the North, for just casual violence, for economic deprivation, for low education levels, and all of that stuff. So does it not also stand to reason, I'm playing a bit of a devil's advocate here, that simply getting black people in power may not lead us to the promised land that you see on the horizon. That because they are black people does not do that. Let me, I, I want to make something very clear. I'm not offering anyone a promised land. Neither am I offering okay. you a utopia. If racial majorities produce utopias, then every white person in America would be thriving right now because they've been in char the majority of, of every state ex except Hawaii for the last 90 years. But they're not all thriving. They still have income inequality, there's still poverty, there's still food insecurity. As I mentioned before, there are seven states where the, the white, uh, white population is 90 plus percent of the population. If racial mm -hmm. majorities produce uh, uh, utopias, then of course all of those people would be thriving. They are not. The argument here is simply this, that on the aggregate, people do better when they do not have to suffer under white supremacy than when they do. You will still have good and bad people because that is the human condition. You will still have good and bad leadership because that is the human condition. Those issues will not evaporate. What you're trying to do is to see what society is like where white supremacy is not the guiding ethos over black bodies. Fair point and cannot be argued against. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up, life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. I wonder whether you will talk a little about your growing up in Louisiana and how this has shaped a lot of your thinking, because when a writer comes up with a, 
another big book and there's a big central idea that's asking us to look at something with fresh eyes. People think it just drops uh, like Moses' tablets. But I'm guessing that is an accumulation of the many little stories and the many little experiences and the different cuts uh, that you've experienced in your life and the scars you've collected that lead you to this moment. Can you kind of walk us through that briefly before we open this up to the audience? Yes, and and I and and, and the way I think about it is not that this was the culmination of injury, but rather the realization of power, that, that, that there was a self-sufficiency that Black people could exercise onto themselves, that it did not require me to go out and protest once again. Every protest, you have to remember, centers the people in power, basically centers whiteness in America. Because if you had the power to do it, you wouldn't have to be, go to the streets. The reason that you are there is because you are protesting against the power that exists right now. We've had one president who wasn't a white man. We've had one vice president who wasn't a white man. The majority of the Supreme Court is white men. The majority of the, the House of Representatives is white men. The overwhelming majority of the Senate is white men. There's four governors in America right now who are not white. None of them are black. 50% of all state houses in America are white men. Another 30% are white women. And they're 15% of the rest of the racial groups that compose it. You are you if if you want if these things were supposed to happen and and these white men wanted to allow them to happen, they'd already be happening. But that's not the case. And you have to figure out, okay, now this is this is the reality. Now what can I do? What power can I assert? And the the Constitution itself gives you a, a avenue to that power because it splits the power in half. Part of it given uh, delegated based on population. The other part delegated based on geography. You just have to be in the right place. So, but I was asking you to tell us a little bit about your childhood in Louisiana and the things that shaped you the most from that experience. Well, one the the, the most central, I mean, the most important thing or uh, most prominent thing about my childhood is that I always I grew up in majority black spaces, all of all of it. The place I was born is majority black. The, the, the town where I grew up, the school that I went to, the college that I went to, and so you know, there's a there was, there was a point where Toni Morrison was talking, and she says, "When I say people, I mean black people." And it wasn't because she was saying black people are better than <laughs> other people. She was just saying, "I've been so surrounded by black people, I just see them as the people." That would be nearly identical to the experience of somebody like me who grew up in Nigeria in the early 60s, right? Yes, yeah. I mean, I tell friends and they're completely shocked that my first white professor inside a classroom was not until I got to grad school at Columbia University 34 years ago. Now, all my first degree at the University of Lagos, I never had a single white professor. I'd never flown on an airplane that was flown by a white person. It was that serious. So, so whiteness was not part of my own experience. And so in my early years in America, and I would ride a bike from Upper West Side in Manhattan to say to the Mets to go to the Egyptian wing because they were showing some big exhibition. And the doorman says, no, the delivery entrance is around the back. Uh, and I just say, oh, no, I'm actually here for the exhibition. The, the meaning of that was completely lost to me. So race was not present in my life at all. 
In fact, my children are teaching me more about race in America than I ever learned about it. So I guess what that leads to for me is for you to consider how for much of the world listening to this conversation, and I think we probably have a fairly international audience tonight, how this, this question of racism in, in America is almost impossible to understand if you're an outsider. Because every society has had division, sometimes racial divisions. There have been histories of slavery elsewhere and so on. Other people manage to take the hardest edges of this. Why does the United States struggle so much to do it? You know, it's an interesting question, probably better suited for a historian. My own under- my own uh, belief of it is this, that it doesn't want to release it. That, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, it, in this country, you know, they created racial castes in a way that worked incredibly well for the people that it worked well for. And those advantages, they believe, are part of the American pact that is made with them. That, that, mm-hmm. it will, that America will guarantee their safety and their prosperity if they just try. And that means that you have to suppress competition uh, both for power, both for uh, for cultural influence, and also for economics, it means that you have to carve a way forward for certain people. You have to give them things that you deny to other people. It is it is part of the American ethos, and America does not, meaning primarily white America, primarily the white men in power in America, do not want to let that go. So we have uh, our first question, Charles. Uh, and it goes this way. Many of the least populated U.S. states, Wyoming, South Dakota, North Dakota, Alaska, Montana, have two Republican senators each. That's 10 Senate seats up for grabs right there. Will it be easier, perhaps, for black Americans to move there instead, as the hippies moved to and forever changed Vermont, another state with a small population? A well-planned migration of only 2 million black Americans will take those 10 Senate seats from the Republicans. Well, no, right, you can move to any small state. I'm proposing, I, on my list of uh, recommended states are nine, where the black population is already 25% or more. It's approaching 40% in Mississippi. So it already gives you a, a head start. There's already culture there. It very very likely, this is where you go for your family reunion in some one of these southern states. Mm-hmm. Uh, those states include Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware. You want to choose just a small state. Delaware is as, is pretty much as small as it gets, but it's already mm-hmm. uh, the eighth blackest state in America. You start where you already have a running start. Another question says, uh, hi, Mr. Blow, beyond Atlanta, what are some of the other big cities in the South that you see flourishing in the future for African-Americans? With, within those nine states, I identify cities. They're basically, I mean, for our international audience, they won't recognize what this means, but we have interstates in America that kind of crisscross the country. One goes straight across, and it's called I-20, Interstate 20, and another goes uh, north is called Interstate 95, and they're 
like jewels along a chain on those states. And all of these states, um, those cities, Shreveport, Jackson, Mississippi, which just became the largest, the uh, blackest big city of 100,000 people, took that title from Detroit, Mobile, Alabama, uh, um, Atlanta, Georgia, obviously. But just there's cities all along that corridor. Most of them have black mayors. Many of those mayors are these young, dynamic personalities with big plans and big ideas. The problem with municipal government as opposed to state government is that in America, there are no cities and towns in the American Constitution. The the power is, is divided between the federal government and the state government. So even with these young black mayors and these majority black population cities, they can only do so much because Anything that the state does not like, they can preempt and change it. And so what we need to move from just having municipal power to also having state power. On the other hand, this pool of leaders does constitute a very deep well increasingly where leaders emerge, particularly in the Democratic Party, right? So they're not entirely polished. They're they're young and dynamic. Stacey Abrams is a Georgia creation you know and a lot of these young leaders you see in the in the democratic party are southern creations okay so another question for you do you assume all black voters will vote as a block or will they vote according to their increasingly varied economic educational and social interests uh, thank you for that question actually whoever asked it because i want to make something incredibly clear when i say black power i do not mean political party power neither democrat or republican Black people now vote overwhelmingly Democrat because they simply cannot abide the the Republican Party in America courting the racists uh, in this country. But black people are in many ways on social issues just as conservative as Republicans. Give If you give them enough political power that they force the political parties to actually compete for their vote, it would. It, it is possible they could vote in a very in a various ways with, for different parties, and that's fine with me. What political power, what black power feels like to me is self determination. It is not slavish devotion to any political party. Now, people might uh, want to be reminded that black people used to be solidly Republican, actually. Uh, you know, when it was the party of Lincoln and the party of black liberation. So people seem to be logically voting their interests over time. Absolutely. And and this is the thing. The philosophies of those parties basically flipped completely. And black people were able to get over the fact that the Democratic Party was hands down the party of the racist and the Klan. But when they changed their position to attract black people, black people were open to being attracted. What I'm saying is when you have political power, you can force a party to abandon its old ways and and appeal to you, and you may be open to that appeal. So we have another question for you from the audience, Charles. Given the roots many black Americans have in the northern states, what other incentives might there be for this migration? It will be hard for many families to uproot, and there are also costs involved in moving and finding new homes and jobs, and I might add, and this is me adding this to the question, uh, new communities, right? Because your greatest capital is your social capital, 
amongst your friends and your neighbors and your you know how do you how do you get people to abandon that and try and rebuild it well it's a, it's, it's very interesting to put roots in that question because at most if you were the part of the literally one of the first people to migrate that's a hundred years ago right so <laughs> it, the, the the roots of america for for 400 years the majority of black people lived in the american south if there is a region of the country that has its black blackness as its roots, it is the South. Mm-hmm. And any family, regardless of whether they live in New York or if they live in mm-hmm. Chicago or Los Angeles, if they are descendants of the enslavement of black people in America, their roots of that family is in the American South somewhere. If they walk through a cemetery in Chicago, maybe there's the parent or maybe a grandparent there. That is a very different yeah. experience for me walking through a, a cemetery in Louisiana and there's, you know, five generations of people there. Uh, and that's just when that's just when they started to mark the graves of black people. So it, the idea of rootedness of the black experience and black people and community, it is not a question that that is most deeply rooted in the American South. In the South. Okay. So I have uh, another question for you before I go back to the audience. And this is about how the changing complexion of black America over the last few generations has seemed to have uh, gathered speed. Initially, it was migration northwards of black people from the Caribbean who brought different ethos, different morals, different experiences, so mostly to northern cities. And that changed the character and the politics of places like Brooklyn and parts of Harlem, but mostly Brooklyn. And then increasingly, I will say, in the post-colonial era, let's just say the last 50 or 60 years, during the time that I've been in existence, there has been a significant migration of other black people, particularly from Africa to the United States. What is interesting to me about that is that despite all these different experiences, America forces them to choose the same politics by and large. Would you say that race is the primary determinant of that? Because a lot of people are coming from different cultures and morals and, you know, mostly conservative compared to, say, your typical kind of black metropolitan liberal, right? But in the end, they all seem to be funneled right into today's Democratic Party. There is not a significant difference at all. I'll say two, uh, say a few things about that. Number one, I was very surprised to learn that the Pew had actually taken a look at where most immigrants from Africa settled. The number one region in the country for immigrants from Africa is at the American South. I thought it was going to be the Northeast. It was not. In addition to that, I believe that black people in the South and black people uh, who are African immigrants share a lot in terms of uh, being relatively more conservative, more religious. You know, you, you, you juxtapose them with the cosmopolitan black liberal. I'm not sure that that is a prominent feature in black American politics, that that the mm-hmm. more religious, more conservative, socially black person in politics is still very prominent Again, it is just that they, they number one, we can't get, get over the fact that the Republican Party betrayed black people and turned their backs on us in order to court the people who hated us. And we can't get over the fact that they still to this day seem to want to attract 
racist or at least abide them in their midst. So that, that, that just becomes a deal killer for black people. In the, in the grand scheme of things, black people are just not as liberal as other Democrats. They're just not. Thank you. There's uh, this question from an audience member from the UK. So this is, I find this interesting. Please, can you ask Charles if he thinks this is an idea we should replicate in the UK? And if so, where should black people go, etc. Et in the UK? You can tell I would prefer we integrate and be happy. What do you say to my UK friend? You know, I don't know enough about uh, UK politics and constitution to answer the question about where you should be in the UK to achieve the same goals that are allowed for on the American constitution. I will say, though, I also agree that I wish that integration produced and diversity produced more egalitarian societies. But what I have seen is that anti-blackness seems to be pervasive still in America and around the globe. It is hard to even find on the planet a society where people have physical differences, meaning there are darker ones and lighter ones, where the darker ones are not assigned a lower caste. That is a problem of anti-blackness that is global. So when I look at America, and maybe you say it's pessimism, but I look at it and say, I see all these immigrants, but I see it, I look at where all of them are coming from, what societies, and if I trace back those societies, many of those societies have their own anti-black problems, even though those people are not white people. Anti-blackness is still prominent. Even though it's also a matter of degrees, right? It's more virulent in some places than others. But the argument is that it is there everywhere. Okay, so you are not necessarily arguing for the audience member to move to Oxford. I am. I didn't know. I am not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Two questions. One: In the black majority cities you mentioned, is quality of life higher for black residents? Two: If a southward black migration reduces diversity in the north. Is, the, is there a risk of increased black othering, racism, other negative outcomes in the North? Well, first of all, the North already has its race, a huge racism problem. So whether or not you exacerbate that or not, you, you can't get over the fact that it exists right now. Stop and Frisk existed in New York City. And when, you know, every year, Quinnipiac, one of our big polling groups, would ask the citizens of New York City, do you think this is a problem? It's a racially skewed police practice that targeted young black and brown men. And every year, the majority of white people in New York City said they were perfectly okay with it. So the North already has its race problem. I'm not trying to, I, I can't consider that. I'm considering black power. Jeff Bond from Cyprus asks, or says that you make a powerful case for giving black Americans an emotional homeland that speaks to their deepest psychic needs. Should we think of splitting the U.S. into separate countries, of which some southern states will be black homeland and others might be Hispanic, Asiatic, and so forth? I guessing this is somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but do you care to address no, that? Well, I, well, I'm not, on a, the face I'm not a secessionist. I'm not a secessionist. I, I believe... You know, the, this idea is to not to break part, make America apart, but to make black people stronger within America. And I believe that the American founding documents actually ha hold the key to doing that. 
and doing it in a legal way, mm -hmm. that you can have a revolution that is not bloody. And all of that is possible because of the way the Constitution is written. So we, we have another question here, and it says, how would you expect the political interest? I think there's a version of this that had been asked before. How would you expect the political interest of a young black daughter in Atlanta, such as your daughter eventually, to differ from the political interest of a young white doctor in Atlanta? In other words, is this class determined, uh, which is not the argument you are making? Well, you know, I was a columnist at the New York Times. I raised two boys under that stop and frisk program that I just talked about in New York City, afraid every time they left the house, knowing that a majority of my white neighbors thought that this was perfectly okay. That's the kind of trauma that a black professional can, you know, there, there is no difference between me, the black professional, and someone who's a black uh, blue collar worker in that regard. When they pull a gun, my son can't pull a resume. He can't say, oh, I did all the right summer programs. Oh, I went to the right school. None of that is possible. What I'm saying to everyone, whether whatever class they're in, is that it is possible to live in a society where you do not think that you are being hunted by police, where you are not disproportionately punished by criminal justice, where you have access to control of power, the power of who, what textbooks your children learn from, what medical opportunities there are for them to take advantage of. All of that is possible. I am simply saying we need a place in America where white supremacy does not prevail. People will rise and fall separately within that society. Not, it's not, it's not going to be equal and glorious for everybody. It's just that it won't be driven by white supremacy. So, and I don't hear you making an argument, do I, that this could be a solution for other countries that also have racial problems. I right? am not making this that is, argument. This it's sounds very, to me very, to be very, specific. very America specific. Okay. So you, you've had the talk with your boys, I would imagine, like every black parent. In fact, I believe you wrote a column about this. I've had a talk about how, the, how they deal with police. But what is striking is that I never, my parents never had to have that talk with me. And it was only because so I was a qualitative difference in right. the argument you're making. Exactly. Here, so. And because we were living in a majority black space and the police officer was someone that we all knew. And then when he left, the guy who replaced him was a cousin by marriage. I never grew up afraid of policing. And it took me coming to New York City with two with black and brown children that I have to then have this ridiculous talk with the child and clip their wings about how they cannot behave in the same ways that their friends behave. Charles, we're coming to the close of our conversation tonight. I think we could probably squeeze in another question or so before we sign off. Um, would you make a similar argument for Hispanics in the U.S.? Should they migrate en masse to, for example, Florida and Texas? to gain more political power. Uh, the, the, the immigration migration is already going to be regional. So if you look out 30 years from now, uh, six or seven of the southwestern states will be majority Hispanic. Not majority, not majority minority, majority Hispanic. Starting with California. Probably. California will yeah. not be majority Hispanic. 
That's that is not the present estimate. California just be majority minority, but other several of other states will be majority Hispanic. Hawaii will continue to be majority Asian, South Pacific Islander, and will send delegates to uh, to the Senate who represent that as, as they do now. The region from Oregon, Washington, down into the Rocky Mountains will remain majority white. Everything east of that will be some mix of majority white and majority minority. Nowhere on that map 30 years from now is any state scheduled to be uh, estimated to be majority black, even though there'll be tens of millions of you in this country. You have to decide this balkanization is coming where it's not my doing. These are migratory patterns that exist right now. Do you want part of the state power pie? It's a pretty stark question. And so we end with a, a Ben Franklin quote sent, sent in by a member of our audience. A democracy, if you can keep it. How can the attacks on voters' oppression by several legislatures be resisted? And just like 10 seconds, because we've run out of time. This is a revolutionary act. It will not be, no, there's no such thing as a revolutionary act without resistance or risk. What you're seeing is massive resistance. You will have to fight it. Thank you, Charles Blow, Thank you. columnist for The New York Times and author, most recently, of The Devil You Know, a Black Power Manifesto. Thank you for joining us in this conversation and to our audience in Europe and around the world. This is Dele Olojade from Lagos, Nigeria, and over to you guys at Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.